Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. How to Cure Ghosts has already earned some wonderful praise. Tommy Pico calls it a nimble, verbing odyssey of selfhood and survival. The work is personal, national, global, contemporary, and historical. I loved reading this. Faria Roisin is an Australian-Canadian writer based in Brooklyn. Her writing often explores Muslim identity, race, pop culture, and film. It also examines the intersection of queerness and being a femme of color while navigating a white world. Fatima Askar is the creator of the Emmy-nominated web series, Brown Girls. She's the author of If They Come For Us and a recipient of a 2017 Ruth Lilly and Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg Fellowship. In 2017, she was listed on Forbes 30 under 30 list. We're incredibly fortunate to have two such talented writers with us this evening. Please join me in giving them a warm welcome. Hi, everyone. How's everyone doing? Good. Awesome. Everyone looks really beautiful, too. I'm, like, very impressed, you know? That, that's a everyone good sign. Up, yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm super excited to have my love, uh, Faria, here. I'm really, really, really happy that, um, you know, she's in L.A. and that we get to do this event together. Um, so I'm the way that this is going to go... Sorry, I'm like, I'm trying to fuck with this mic to make it like work I'm like for getting, me. And I'm trying to get comfortable, you know? know? <laughs> it's just, it's just too, is this too much? Um, uh. But also, I think that like something to say too is that I know a lot of times like poetry readings sometimes can be a little like stiff or whatever. And like, don't, we're chill, you know? So we can like kind of have that not be the environment that we have here. Um, and I'm going to read, um, I'm going to read then Faria's going to read, and then we're going to have a conversation between the two of us, and then we're going to open it up to Q&A, okay? Um, does that make sense? Yeah? Everyone good? Anybody yeah. want this front seat? It's a yeah, great view. Yeah, there's one seat. One beautiful seat. Okay, cool. Um, I'm actually going to dedicate this to you, baby. Um, Yay! Yeah, this poem is called If They Come For Us. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, this is also dedicated to you. <laughs> These are my people, and I find them on the street and shadow through any wild, all wild. My people, my people, a dance of strangers in my blood. The old woman sorry dissolving to wind. Bindi a new moon on her forehead. I claim her, my kin, and so the star of her to my breast. The toddler dangling from stroller, hair a fountain of dandelion seed at the bakery I claim them too. The Sikh uncle at the airport who apologizes for the pat down, the Muslim man who abandons his car at the traffic light, 
drops to his knees at the call of the Azan and the Muslim man who drinks good whiskey at the start of Maghrib, the lone khala at the park, pairing her kurta with crocs, my people, my people, I can't be lost when I see you. My compass is brown and gold and blood. My compass, a Muslim teenager, snap back and high tops gracing the subway platform. Mashallah, I claim them all. My country is made in my people's image. If they come for you, they come for me too in the dead of winter. A flock of aunties step out on the sand. They're the buttas turned to ocean. A colony of uncles grind their palms and a thousand jasmines bell the air, my people. I follow you like constellations. We hear glass smashing the street and the nights opening dark. Our names, this country's wood for the fire. My people, my people, the long years we've survived, the long years yet to come. I see you map my sky, the light, your lantern long ahead. And I follow, I follow. Um, thanks, y'all. I'm gonna actually do something that I don't normally do, which is I'm going to read something that's totally super, super new and Ooh. is in, um, like in process. And um, so basically I'm working on a novel right now and it's a novel Ooh. that's uh, like in lyrical fragments. And so it, it centers around three siblings. Um, uh, the eldest is Noreen. Then um, there is uh, Kahal and then uh, Koser, who's the youngest. And this is all from the perspective of Koser. Um, so I'm going to read two, two sections from that. Sorry. Give me one second. Okay. What is a sister? Lip gloss is for basic bitches, Noreen says at the dollar store. And I put the small vial back. The girls in my class who wear lip gloss now all in a new category I didn't know existed. Noreen gets me a bright red, something with fire in the title, and I think of my lips ablaze, catching. I think of painting our whole room with it and letting it all burn. Noreen puts it on first, her lips so bright everyone looks when we walk through the park, Kahal dragging behind us, fingers raking the fence. Noreen laughs with every cell in her body, a laugh that wakes the park, a laugh that makes the men lean out of their windows and smirk as we walk by. Everyone asks Noreen where she's going, where her body is headed, but she doesn't answer, only takes my hand and twirls me around the park like I'm her little top, spinning, spinning. And I spin, and her laugh bubbles again, and the fire is all across her teeth, smudged onto her chin. And I don't tell her, even though I know her face will fall when she looks in the mirror and sees. But I don't tell her, because I love the red like that, how where her lips go, the color follows, how her canines are painted with it, threatening to drip fire or blood or love, depending. Um, and then later kind of in, so it's really about these three siblings and about them kind of growing up without like adult supervision and, and what that really looks like when that happens. Um, and then they're also kind of like in their teens and in high school and really grappling with their bodies and what does it mean to be, in their bodies and what, is that, what does that feel like? Um, and a lot of this too is kind of con like around the concept of like other bodies that they have within their bodies um, and, how, and when those come out and when they don't. Um, and so this is much later in the book um, and the section is called, Who is Your God? 
Outside the cars line up. Outside they honk late into the night. Outside the cars have men inside them. These men that stay in their cars. These men that are older and married or younger and lonely, but they are men and there is only their hunger. Outside, they come around and circle our block. Outside, the men wait, their cars idling, their cars spilling gas as their eyes look up to our apartment, as Noreen's other body rubs dollar store lipstick into a perfect pout as she lines her eyes to keep the evil out. Noreen's other body is more girl than any girl I've ever seen, older, like she's just stepped out of a movie poster. Noreen's other body doesn't have dead parents. She's a girl everyone wants, a girl that can mold to anyone's hunger. Noreen's other body ignores the honking until she's ready, until she steps away from the bunk bed, until she steps out of the apartment of strangers, until she disappears into car after car, until the men whisper their skin into her skin, until their hunger calms for a few moments, until they get her lipstick on their teeth, until their body kneels below hers, until their knees fold into salah. And only then, when she is ready, when they are begging, she leaves their cars and steps into another car, and they putter away, amazed that they get to be with my big sister, amazed that someone like Noreen can exist. Noreen, god of men, god of the cars, god of hunger. Because Noreen's hunger isn't Noreen's other body's hunger, or the hunger of the men who wait, transfixed for her. Noreen's hunger keeps her moving, car to car, looking and looking. Noreen's other body fucks, but Noreen is untouched. Noreen expands and expands and expands until she fills our neighborhood, until the whole night is Noreen, until Noreen is back in our apartment, in the bunk below me, the blanket tucked under her chin. And then we are back in our world the three of us together, asleep under Noreen's expansive night, until the next day, when they are back again, waiting as their, as their cars idle, ready to worship. Thanks, y'all. Thank you so much. Um, so I'm super, super excited about Faria's debut book. Um, and I'm just really honored to kind of be in, in your presence and to be able to sit with you. Um, so yeah, I'm just gonna kick it over to you. And I'm, I'm just, can we all just give Faria another warm welcome for, for this book? Very kind. I'm gonna Palo Santo myself. Um, thank you so much for coming. Um, this really means a lot to me. I'm gonna try and move this microphone. <laughs> Almost everybody. Okay. Thank you so much for coming. I've been working on this book for five years, and it's been one hell of a journey. And I've changed so much, as, as we all do in five years. And so you'll, if you've had a chance to read the book, you'll understand you know, the tones. It changes a lot. And, my maturity changed, you know, how I viewed the world changed, how I viewed myself, most importantly, changed. And I'm just really, really grateful for this experience to read my work in front of you. So thank you so much. I really, I, it really means a lot. Um, so with that, I'm going to start. Um, this one's called, You Feel Me, Right? You Feel Me? 
It's no coincidence that I turned out like this. Skin like honey, small dimples puckering my elbows to my knees, a condition Abu refused to accept, thinking my child will have the most perfect of all the smooth skin if I have to bring her to this country. You know, this country. Here, there, where, her body doesn't melt from gasoline inhalation, where the billboards don't bloom sweaty dripping formaldehyde, formalin fruits like plastic in a fruit bowl full of lies, where she has clean running water to wipe out her wounds so she isn't gutted out into the streets like fresh raw tripe, stale like old Halloween candy. A good life, they told us, but a good life for whomst? A good life for all the ghosts, all the omens, all the sorrows of our sad, sad nations. When I was a child, I would imagine my skull crashing into asphalt, cracking open like a watermelon. I wanted to die even then, my mild gloom haunting my sentimentality in the duddy wind. My grief like a migraine strang strangling my hope, my grief my only scapegoat from the wretched humidity of just surviving. I don't want to just survive anymore, Mom. It hurts, it hurts, it hurts, Mom. Why didn't you save me, Mom? Why didn't you ever try? I think about it night and day, even still how hard it is to let go of this ultimate betrayal Freudian. I wish, I wish, I wish I could be so much stronger than this, but sometimes all I want for is some cool sheets and someone to say, shh, I love you, honey. Not out of obligation or bleak ass responsibility, but because they mean it. If you can't love me, who will? This one's called, Bad Men Keep Bad Men Keep Bad Men Cool. <clears throat> I thought bad men hidden woods, disguised in wolf costumes, bloodthirsty strangers with candy hollering like dogs outside schools, slipping hands up short dresses, watching asses rumble as they shake upstairs, using handy cams to capture a cheek, all bravado, cum-stained car seats. I thought bad men were senators, politicians, Trump and Fox News reporters, anti-Semites, neo-Nazis, punch him in the face, Richard Spencer, religious zealots, Zionists, transmisogynists, homophobes, mansplainers. I heard Egon Scheele was abusive, and L. Frank Baum and H.P. Lovecraft hated black people. And oh, don't even get me started on male novelists. Heathcliff and Rochester both had rage issues, the Brontes knew. I thought bad men looked like Willem Dafoe or Crispin Glover in Charlie's Angels, the dark-haired bad boys who do backflips, motorcycle jackets, badlands, killing sprees, across and down all manner of highways, gilded with angled noses, flared nostrils, lips that would embrace you as if swallowing you whole, exterminating your existence through a kiss, a dementor draped in flesh. I didn't think bad men would mask themselves as good men, that they would never announce themselves as bad or merely present themselves as good until it no longer served them. 
pathetic until the end. I didn't think a bad man would take away my virginity with a throbbing blunt thud, never call or get me pregnant, or tell me I'm a dramatic cunt that all kinds of women get abortions. It's not a big deal. Bad men do what bad men did for centuries because that's what bad men like bad men do. They walk away from their dangerous swamps of indignation they create. The cuts, broken kneecaps, the crazy they mythologized, then nurtured, gaslighting slow death, the ugly self-hate they weave into bodies they deem weak, belonging to no one. And once you learn what bad men do, you carry that uncertainty along with all your other baggage, looking for a sign like a flashing neon light bulb. This man is bad. And even then, you only barely begin to understand, even though you find you almost always knew. Goddamn, just trust your gut, bitch. <laughs> this one's called Je ne suis pas feu. In French, that means I'm not crazy. Nobody died that year. No member of my family lay bloodied and brutal, but my heart had dried out like parchment. My mind yellow, like the song, drawn out and arid, like an overscratched scab. I had become obsolete. Je ne suis pas faux. I remember the sounds of what it felt like to love you. The flaming lips, I still can't listen to Yushimi the same way. You are Yushimi, you once said to me. Afterwards, I told you that you said that, and you scoffed, embarrassed. Je ne suis pas faux. What does it mean to love? Throwing a grenade without caution, you wax romanticism into my body like a sweet song, silently stealing every inch of me to cure your ache. You threw it at me like a child, not knowing how to carry flames, not knowing what it would mean to do so. And now, you've walked away with your hands in the air. Je ne suis pas faux. What astounds me is your fantastic arrogance, always looking like you're determined to smile under the frustrations of life, but tragically failing, jettisoning all efforts delusional. Your words are mere echoes now, your face wooden with a stupid obstinacy, a smirk lining the edges of your self-denial. Je ne suis pas faux. After you left, I was confused because I was unsure what it meant about me. I see potential in people way before I see the reality. You weren't victim to my act of human frailty. You were just the biggest letdown. Je ne suis pas faux. Why is it that as women, we have to validate our stories, even to other women or against other women's petition against us? We've all drunk the Kool-Aid. Even if we have no past of histrionics, we find ourselves always on the defense. And maybe we only shared what was chemical for a few moments, simply because we were bound together for the longing of something. Who knows what it was? But again, je ne suis pas faux. Okay. So 
this book is largely about, it's about a lot of things. You know, the ghost is white supremacy. The ghost is my mother. The ghost is ancestral trauma. It's everything. And I really, when I was writing this book, I mean, I don't think at first I really knew I was writing a book. I was just like, I need to process my emotions. Um, and also, you know, I wasn't being allowed to write like what was really inside of me. And I think when you're South Asian and when you're queer and Muslim and you're all of these things, but especially when you're South Asian and you're Muslim, people are like, what are you? Like, it, there's just such a lack of definition in our culture um, of, of South Asian-ness. And I really just wanted something that described the pain of existing in this liminal space. And so this um, poem is called The Many Descriptions of Being Brown. White people tell you to apologize for yourself through gestures, through small talk, through the ways in which they ask, where are you from? And then again, unresolved, no, I mean, where are you really from? Or when they tell you you're pretty for an Indian girl, and even though you're not Indian, you nod, smiling with forgiveness and agreement. Or when they tell you that you don't act like an Indian and, and you don't even mind that you're not Indian because you're so filled with glee that you're not some kind of dancing monkey. So you feel you will be accepted like you're about to join a sorority, a sorority where all the white people go, and you. That they'll forget you aren't as brown as brown could be until they snicker a curry under their breath as they look at you. Or mention a poo and do the Indian voice, thank you, come again. And instead of making them uncomfortable with an admonition of their racism, in response, you will say defensively that it sounds nothing like your father, which is true, but it'll take you years to understand the damage it's done when they see you and not a human, when they see not you, but a stereotype made up by a white person. But they'll drink a $6 turmeric latte, make a chai walla shop in Toronto, ride rickshaws down Manhattan, say namaste during yoga extra loudly because they are so, 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 so very cultured, and ask you, why is Bangladesh so poor, you think? And the rage will build up like a shiver, a storm like a death chant, all velvet enough to rip a colonialism size rebuttal. It will rise up and then you'll soon realize the grief of being faced with who you are. Finally, as if your windpipe has been plucked, that you were so lucky to have a culture so rich, it was stolen. And you will mourn the loss of your youth, the days of wanting to be white, and the pain of rejection from all the white girls you loved. And the shame will usurp you until you realize it's not too late. So you will lift yourself up and embrace the ache. You will claim all that was yours and has been. Your ancestors smiling bright across the shores. You will love yourself. Um, so I've cried at every book reading, <laughs> uh, which is very on brand for me. Um, and just like, <laughs> um, but the reason I've cr I have cried is primarily because I, so I wrote this book and my mother, I've not talked to my mother in si six months. So she doesn't know that this book is out. And a lot of the poems are about her. And it's, it's really hard to put out work and not feel loved. I write about this a lot. And it's that feeling of just like, I mean, it's a dislocating feeling. 
um, of just, you know, people are like, how do you feel? And I'm like, I feel psychotic. Um, and, and really, I do. <laughs> um, because it's just so many emotions at once, you know? So the feeling is, is, is very difficult to process. Um, so at the same time, my parents made me who I am. And I'm very grateful to them for that. And I have to have a little bit of them in this room. So I've committed myself to reading this poem, but it's a hard one. And if I cry, it's okay. I'm good. I'm processing. It's cathartic. Um, it's called, You Come to Understand a Place Only After You Leave It. And just before I start as well, there's um, Bangla songs. Does anybody speak Bangla here? Yay! Hi! Yay! Yay! So there's, uh, there's Bangla poems, or there's Bangla like um, song lyrics as the titles of each stanza. So you come to understand a place only after you leave it. Kotobaro Bebichino. I remember Ma, as spring passes through her. The smile so lit, toothy and grinned. She's so beautiful and people says so. They know so. She's the color of summer like a taut drum. Her skin over her cheekbones raised and swaddled like a canoe on a creek of my over-emotional heartstrings. Tagore beckons the high moves through the seas of my body like carp. Seeing her smile is like an answered prayer. Chirodini tumije amar. Baba so handsome, daddy cool. I saw him in his flared, faded bell bottoms in the bleary photos from the 70s. A slight halo like a fro, wearing a velvet vest and sideburns from here to there. Fuck. I wish I could have known him then. Jekene shimanto tomar. I wish I could have known her in that yellow sari. Seated next to a white man so innocent. The days when she was still hoping for a break. Praying for one that would stifle the loud, ugly voices in her head. For the messy, concentric circles inside her mind to subside and rest. Ami tomake bole dibo. Tears roll down the plastic page, the vellum that seals the images into place. Her smile so big, bright, and red as she sits next to her husband who will never love her. But this is not a Jeremiad for them. No, I'm tired of that. I want to hope for love for them, even if it's just from themselves. I want to tell them, whispered into their souls, me in New York, Baba in Abu Dhabi, Ma in Sydney, I want to remember you as you once were, before me and before Apu, before the strain and the marriage, before the illnesses locked us into some subliminal horror show. Before that, who were you? Amar bole kichu chilona. You're my heroes. I'll never come close to one tenth of what you did, what you survived. 
You're my heroes. As the light pulls into my sun-drenched apartment, I remember you as you deserve to be remembered. I remember the smiles that shook my childhood and the laughs of our afternoons shaking into years as we sit in Istanbul as a family by the Bosphorus. We all wanted more, but Allah gave us one another. We all wanted more. The pristine normalcy of other people's families. No outbreak of war or turmoil or Ma's shrieks enough to cut into the cords of our gloom, of our dreary fates. But as I remember you, none of that matters, my loves. You gave me my life. How can I ever walk away from that? This poem is called Under the Golden Hour. We are the ones we have been waiting for. June Jordan. One, beached grass stuck in between my toes like a coarse brush from my feet, erasing the memories of what pains me in this lifetime. I never thought I could be saved by anybody, but I wanted for it like a bulbous flower bursting at my throat. I wanted to want for a life that was mine. Back then, a wink could have saved me, a smile, a warm hand on my musty head of lysed up hair, I longed for care, like addicts long for a hit. I'd sit in the leather chair and pray for a man, pray for a husband, for a child, for a girlfriend, for a woman to hold me close and snap me in her breast for a somebody. Two, the many ways I denied myself Islam is sad to me now. The many ways I denied myself myself, but I'd look at those mushroom turbans and think, not on my watch, I'm gonna be white! When you're us, living gets harder because you have nobody to be like. So everything tells you not to be alive. Three, so me, with my liar's imagination, drew up all kinds of majesties that I could survive. A life where I was my own master, it took years and years of practice, of hands on my own back, on my head, shushing the pain away, clawing at my sides like I was a lover, reminding myself everything is perspective, except abuse. But I can outlive that too. I can outlive my abuse and face it, longingly look towards how it has me in its clutch, in its jaws, in its crazy whip and release it, like a heavy yawn that stretches out and out until all that's left is a memory almost forgotten. Four, and if it should very well happen that I will never be embraced, then I will accept it wholeheartedly somehow, accept the burn on my tongue, the feeling of knocking my toe against the stub of the curb, the bloat of my stomach after I gouge at that tiny block of manchego? What is life if not a remembrance of the good and the bad? I'm sure there are many like me who question how unlovable they are. Am I entirely, wholly, unequivocally unlovable? How did I become like this? Sopping up every moment of betrayal, feeding it into a narrative of self-loathing, but how about good enough for me? Why isn't that an option? 
Five. I am better now. I gave birth to myself, a new beginning, a robust cycle. I rewrote the scriptures of my mother's pasts and her mother's pasts. I am in the throes of survival. I am lived. I am living. It's astonishing. Sometimes it's hard for me to believe I'm alive. So, yeah. This is my last poem. And it's a really hard poem. <laughs> um, and I started writing it after I found out about some sexual abuse that my mother had experienced. Um, and I've just been feeling so much rage for so long. And, you know, I think, what do you do with that rage? Like, what, where do you put it? We're told, you gotta just, you gotta get on with it, you know? You gotta live your life. And I'm her daughter and I feel everything. I feel everything she's ever been through. And yeah, how do you pocket and compartmentalize rage? I, I don't think that we should do that anymore. So this poem is about me figuring out that I don't wanna do, I wanna, if I wanna be angry, I'm gonna be angry and I'm gonna let it out and say it as it is. So this one's about rage and it's called This One's With Teeth. For a millennia, I was tight-lipped, keeping my tongue at the base of my throat like a good Muslim girl, but we've lost so much in these concentric times, our sisters, our bodies, that now I want to speak with teeth, to rip the tender esophagus out through the curve of my jaw, to wield a knife like a pen, like a sword that tilts on an axis. I want to rip the balls right off of them. I want to cover myself in their blood and prostrate to God on the floors of a matted mosque and ask for forgiveness. I think of my mother, what happened to her, and I want to kill them for her, drag them by their throats with my fangs on their jugulars, laying their lifeless broken bodies at her feet and say, see mama, you can live now finally. There's nothing to fear anymore. Her nightmares become mine and I haunt them in their dreams. I follow them in their boring, sad lives. I want to kill all the men who think my body is a vehicle of pleasure when really it's just a vehicle for war. As I rupture their spleens with a devastating poison, as they look towards me, I look down on them on my throne. Like Kali, I am an avenger and I am here for blood. I bellow through the seas, you cannot hide from me. I'll rip your smarmy grin right off your face. You cannot hide from me. I can taste your fear like sweat dripping onto my tongue. You cannot hide from us. We are coming for you. We are rising. We are rising with the moon, with the tide when you're not looking out. We'll take it all back and great waves will come. Our voices curled outwards, untethered to our pains. We will take what we came here for. Thank you.
Um, that was so beautiful. Thank you. I'm so proud of you. So before we get into this conversation, something I kind of want to just talk to y'all about is like, we're really good friends. Um, <laughs> and I think something I feel really grateful for in our friendship is the way that we're able to like really show up and be vulnerable in a way that you know, where, where we're allowed, we, when I'm around you, it feels like I'm allowed to be like, I don't have all the answers and yeah. I don't, I don't know what this means. And, um, and I'm struggling. And so I think what's interesting is about being like in this scenario is like, I'm like, I want to make that space right now for everybody. Like I want us to, to carry some of the vulnerability we have when it's just us and mm -hmm. see, I know that there's a lot more people here, but kind of extend it into that space, both in this conversation and then in our, um, Q&A too, you know? And so in order to do that, I just ask that you don't record. Is that cool? For this part. Is that cool? And, um, and yeah, and just to know that we're like in the spirit of vulnerability for, for how we're trying to do this. Um, I don't know if it'll work. You know, I, we'll see if it'll work. It's an experiment. We're all on the ride together. Um, so, I mean, thinking about there's so much and so many things, you know, and themes that, of, of the, of your book. And then also of like what came up in, in your reading. And, um, you talked a little bit about what it means to be a person that lives, um, in an undefined space. Right. Mm -hmm. So like what it means to feel like you, you're, you're kind of like without example and, and having to define yourself. And so, I just kind of want to take a moment right now to be like, how do you define yourself and how and who are your people, right? Mm -hmm. And like, how do you define your people? How do you define yourself? Who are your people? How do you find your people? Yeah, that's a hard one. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. The, the freaks. <laughs> the freaks and the weirdos and the, I mean... Uh, also just like I have immense amount of compassion for Muslims mm -hmm. um, just because when I was growing up I didn't have anyone cool like there was no like it was nobody like literally nobody <laughs> and I mean and you know with South Asianness that was one thing but with Muslims like forget about it like you were supposed to hate yourself and you know like and a lot of us did you know I, I think a lot of us were just like okay I guess this means that we hate ourselves and um that that feeling is so is so specific that I have and because Islamophobia is so rampant still I have so much love in my heart for yeah for Muslims around the world and then, of course, South Asians. And, and I mean, it's tricky because South Asians are also whack. And, you know, like, that's, that's also, like, that's tricky. You know, like, that's really tricky. And, and it's, I want us to do better. And I want us, to, but I, and, and so there's this feeling of, like, wanting to protect, but also being like, let's just, just let, just do better. Let's try a little harder, you know, and, like, let's listen more. And, you know, what what's that woman? Oh my god, she's like fucking. She's like a super demon, evil woman who di who's like doing that Brexit tot. Did you see this video? And I was like, another one, <laughs> like another just like evil brown person. I'm like, god damn it. And I don't. So it's really that's why it's so tricky because we can't speak for anybody. I can only speak for myself. Do I? Do I? And then it's like. People of abuse, people that have been abused, my God. Mm -hmm. 
that is a whole other thing. And there is nothing more sacred to me than somebody wanting to heal. That's, in, that's incredible to me. And I, I feel like I'm very committed to wanting to heal people. And that's everybody. So it's, it, it sort of goes back and forth. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of gray area. Mm-hmm. But I think this book is very much about like exploring all of those dimensions yeah. of, of who, am, who am I? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, and so, you know, in, in your poems too, you kind of talked a lot, you know, you, you're grappling a lot in here with, your, with family and with your mom and your relationship to your mom. Um, and, uh, you know, writing a book is scary (laughs) and people don't tell you that. And then you put out a book and you're, or not even that, but like you do the work of having to reconcile with some of the stuff in your family when you're an artist and you're using that as a place, a site that you're really drawing from. Right. And you're, it's like Mm -hmm. that feeling of like, you know, you're reckoning with a lot of your fears of abandonment, a lot of what it feels like to, maybe say something and name something and risk a blowback on you, yeah. right? And so thinking about your book, thinking about, you know, you, you said that you haven't spoken to your mom in a while too, and just thinking about, like, what does it kind of feel like to reckon with some of that stuff, to have put this book out in the world, um, to know, to, like, navigate the dual terrain of, like, speaking about relationships with family and then also managing the relationships with your family? Mm. Yeah, um, when I first started writing, my father told me, don't make your mother look bad. Mm -hmm. And that's something I think about all the time because you, you come to this moral conundrum when you're writing about your family because you're really unsure about the boundaries. Am I allowed to write about my grief? Absolutely, but does that grief is that grief shared equally among, you know, my dad and my sister? I don't know. I can't speak for them. And my sister did tell me this year she's like please don't write about me and I was like, okay. Like she's just like just don't reference me in interviews and stuff and I was like, okay. And and we're in this like very particular time in our lives together as sisters where you know, she's back home in Australia and she's looking after my mom. And so much of her difficulty is the fact that she can't actually like fully process the abuse because she's in it still. And I have the luck of not being in it mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I really battle with. Um, for the longest time, I've been away for almost a decade. For the longest time, she kind of had this like hold on me where I felt as if I, I owed her something mm-hmm. for staying. And she would hold it against me. Mm-hmm. You know, she would be like, you know, she would regularly remind me, like, you got away. Mm-hmm. You can have a good life. I can't. And so I don't necessarily agree with her completely, but it's something to think about when, as writers, as artists, we do have this incredible gift of processing. Mm-hmm. And how lucky am I that I get to share my grief and my pain and hope that it heals other Mm -hmm. people. Like that is such a beautiful offering. Um, 
but I don't think that that tension is ever going to go away um, because I'm not what they wish I was. And that's really hard. I'm not their ideal. Like, even though they can see, you know, my dad knows about my book. Is he going to read it? I don't think so. You know, like, it's, it's these realities of just, like, ultimately, I can only really do what's in my truth and what's my truth, you know, do what's right for me and kind of intuitively follow that. But I don't know if it's ever going to get easier. Yeah. That's super real. <laughs> um, yeah, I think about that often as like, um, it's, it's just not having to navigate that and what that means. And then also that kind of weird feeling where sometimes you're like, there's such a deep place that family fills. And when that, that place is like really scarred by loneliness or scarred by trauma, and then you're like doing public talks about it. And you're like, yeah. uh, it's like just, it's just a hard kind of thing to navigate, mm-hmm. you know, when that, like as a person and then also as like mm-hmm. a public person, mm-hmm. you know, what that means. Yeah. Cause people have a lot of expectations of you neatly folding it up and putting it away. Mm-hmm. And you carry that, I carry this trauma around with me everywhere I go. Yeah. And it's, it is so weird to me to have to, yeah, like sort of pretend like I'm okay to a certain degree when mm-hmm. all I want to do sometimes is cry. And, mm-hmm. and this book, yeah, it's been like such a trip because it exposes everything. And that's wild, you know, to me to, to expose everything. But at the same time, there is such a sense of relief knowing that it exists. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's the only thing you can do. Right. You, you have to just like know that there, there's no other way that you have to write and what would we do without writing? Yeah. When you were writing, when you kind of like you were saying, like, you didn't realize you were writing a book and then you realized it. Was there, was there a thing that you felt like an arc you were writing towards? Like, were you writing towards relief? Were you writing towards, was there something that you were like, I want to achieve this in this, in these pages, in these poems? I think I just wanted to tell what had never been told before. Mm-hmm. And so even just like specificity of abuse and, you know, just things like uh, even like something about 9-11 or, yeah. or Islamophobia, there's just all of these things that I feel like we just still haven't confronted as a society. And I really just wanted to confront them in my own way and yeah. in my own tone. Yeah. And I use like sadness and grief, but I also use a lot of humor. Mm-hmm. And to me, humor is such a great tool of, of just kind of getting right to it. Mm-hmm. And, um, I feel like, f- I don't think I was ever really like immersed in like, this is going to be a book and this is what it's going to look like. I really, I think I'm still like, wow, it's a book. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> because I, 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 I used it as a tool of catharsis mainly. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. sort of, I didn't have a therapist until this year. Mm-hmm. So it was my therapy for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about like also what you were talking about around like, both self-hate and also self-identification and thinking about your, like, relationship with Islam and particularly 9-11, like, what has that kind of journey been like or what do you wish the conversation around 9-11 publicly allowed more space for, too? For our humanity. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's a line in there. there's 1.5 billion Muslims and many of you don't even know one. I think that's a reality that we're facing that 
I mean, just, you know, I was thinking about this today, what's happening with the Uyghurs and Uyghur Muslims in China, what's happening with um, what happened in New Zealand this year, what is the largest refugee groups around the world from the Rohingyas to the Syrian refugees to Palestinians, most of them are Muslim. You know, there's a trend that's happening that's trying to kill Muslims and there's such rampant Islamophobia and it is sort of crazy making not to be able to talk about it. And I mean, I feel like we've intimated this before, but you know, I couldn't openly talk about being Muslim until like maybe six years ago. Mm-hmm. There was so much shame around it for me. And I pretended for so long not to be Muslim when I was growing up because I didn't want to be hated. And I didn't know what it meant to be a good Muslim. You know, I didn't know what that looked like. And so I just, I just hid. And I think my tendency to want to hide comes from that fear. I mean, so many of us just want to hide. Like, I want to be small. It's hard for me to take up space because I've been socialized to think that I have nothing to say. I've been on so many different levels, as a woman, as a brown person, as a queer person, as a Muslim, you know, I've been told repetitively throughout my life that I don't have anything worthy to say. And so to then decide to say something is just such a feat to me. But with that comes all the agonizing self-doubt of like, is this good? Do I, do I actually have anything to say? What I was telling you upstairs, like the delusion of like, is this book any good? Um, but I can't worry about that. All I can do is know that certain things that I put in this book, I've never seen anywhere before. And that to me is a step forward. Yeah feeling like, okay, I am adding something to the discourse. I'm adding something to to what it means to be Muslim right now. And that's exciting. Mm-hmm. Totally, yeah. And so thinking about, like, the idea of, like, uh, what does it mean to be a good Muslim and, like, growing up with that and stuff, like, we're – and I think about, like, us and our particular bodies and the ways that they can also be both – they're just read so many different ways, right? Mm -hmm. They're read by, like, non-Muslims a certain way. They're read by Muslims a certain way. They're read by, in that gamut of what it means to be Muslim, you're read by all different kinds of people. And there's so much around, like, so much around how, you like you're saying, what you're being told to be and and that idea of what it means to be a good Muslim, right? Mm -hmm. And so thinking about your journey and, like, where you're at right now, like, what is your kind of, like, definition of that or like what is your take on that where are you at with it like how do you how do you kind of define that for yourself and for like you know the future you and the the past yous and stuff I just want to be me Mm -hmm. I don't you know and I just wish that as a society we let others just be who they are I think it's really wild that we all think that we have the right formula Mm -hmm. you know it's like oh I live my life like this, and so you have to live your life like this. That's not how it works. Everybody has to live their lives the way that they want to live them. And I feel like if we lived in a society that was more accepting of that and not trying to apply 
or impose or project all the time, we would be so much more healed and so much more loving and compassionate. And that is that is something that I really want to move towards mm-hmm. because I just, I don't see a lot of love in the world right now. And that's all I want to see. Mm-hmm. If in moments of grief, you know, what, what better thing to turn to than love? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love that. Um, so I feel like I could, we could keep talking forever, but um, I know that there's people who have questions and things that they want to ask too. So um, can, maybe we can turn it, open it up for for folks to kind of ask their questions as well. Are there any questions? Yes. I don't think it's a limitation. I, I mean, maybe you do, but I think it's actually, uh, it's an expansive thing to be like, especially when no good examples of who you are have ever been in media before. You know, there's this report done, or there was this book um, called Real Bad Arabs by this uh, historian called Jack Shahan, and he... Uh, did a study that over the periods of like 1888 to 2001, in a thousand depictions of Muslim men, 12 of them were positive. That does something psychologically to you. And if you're psychologically told that you are bad through every media report that exists, there is something incredibly beautiful and necessary in saying, no, these are the things that I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, um, wait, let's just... But that I think that that's your your way of doing that, and that's totally fine, and that's totally great, and you know, no, yeah, and. We, I think I think me saying I'm South Asian and Muslim is me identifying with humanity. One like one fifth of the the world is Muslim, and that's me opening it up and being like I'm having a dialogue with people that have been vilified for so long. And there is something, and you can believe whatever you want. I'm sure living in in a Muslim country is different for sure, but. That's not my experience. And I, and I see that a lot from people who don't identify with mu- being Muslim anymore. That's fine. But this is me. Yeah. And this is what I, this is what I stand for. Yep. Hi. Hello, Tara. How do I how do I remove myself? Yeah, 
I think stepping away from work is really important. So like, I, this is me, no matter what, whether I'm writing an essay or I'm writing a book, I have to step away from it, like actually physically. So um, I'll have like a lot of periods of time where I won't work on it. And I think that when you return to something, you are just immediately aware of all the things that aren't working. And you're like, this is shit. Um, I worked on, so my novel comes out next year and I've been working on it for, when it comes out, 18 years. And, and lots happens in, a lot happens in 18 years. And I think it's actually so beneficial to the process because I get to be away from it. I've gotten to be away from it for so long. So I think we don't actually, because we live in this like weird gig economy and, you know, like capitalism. So, you know, everything is a buck. And we don't actually allow ourselves to give our art the time to breathe. And if you just, if you just gave yourself more space to do that, I think it would really, really benefit whatever you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I said this earlier about the moral conundrum. I think that there's no way to escape that. You, uh, as a writer, or as you know, as an artist, as somebody who is doing that kind of work, you absolutely have to question yourself all the time. But the thing that, the way that I look at it is that it's not just about her, unfortunately. And that's why ancestral trauma is so important. It's because I think that we live, we believe that these things don't carry through, but we all know that they do. And so what do you do with that ghost? What do you do with that lingering feeling of something that is unnameable? You have to name it. And me naming it is me deciding that I want to heal both her and myself, but primarily myself. Because if I can heal myself, I can begin to heal her, potentially. So that's the way I look at it. I love this question. You want to go first? Yeah. Um, what guides me? Um, a, a lot of things. I think I'm primarily guided by by my a strong and deep and unwavering love of my people. It's really rough, even when they're like, I'm like still like enamored and in love with everyone, and it's really fucking annoying. Um, but I think I think it's a thing where I just um, yeah, I deeply want to like. I often operate from that that kind of like well in place of love and I just like will watch like when I define who my people are and I watch them like when I watch queer people be free oh my god like I am so ha you know I can't I can't mm. there's nothing that I can feel that way like when I watch um you know Muslim people like I'm just like 
so in love. Like, you know, even when like aunties will be like, your hair is coming out of your debata. I'm so in love. I'm like, yes, like it is. Um, And I just, I feel like there is a, there's just so much richness that I find from seeing my my people like smelling my people being around them like uh and also our our beautiful and lovely whackness like I'm like <laughs> oh like yeah it's quaint it's <laughs> but I think that there there I really am propelled by that and then you know I think I I strongly also though believe because I think what like some of these definitions can get so like wieldy when you're an artist that you just it's just becomes hard to create because you're like how do I write something for you know you can kind of get in your head around some of that and really I anchor in people I anchor in specific people and I and I'm very guided by specific people um and and they're all um people I deeply know and like you know can call at any point or um, you know, no longer can because because they pass. But it's like a thing where I know who I know I know I know. And when I'm writing something, usually it's um, I'm I like because I don't write in a vacuum. It's not for me. I, that's not the way I come from things. I'm not writing because I wrote it for myself. Like that's to me that's bullshit because it would say my fucking journal and nobody would ever fucking read it and it'd be great because I wouldn't have to worry about anything. Um, but I I. Um, that's not, I know that people worry about things even when, you know, when they keep their shit in their journal. What a statement. Um, but I, I think that there is like a way where, um, when I'm writing something, I'm, I'm trying to connect. That's like literally what I'm trying to do. And I'm also trying to think about who is this, like my specific folks, like my specific folks reading my specific stuff, watching my specific stuff. Like that's, I, I like very clearly vision that. And so that's that's who I feel guided by. I think I am guided by the the need for connection. Um, I I long for connection so much and there's nothing more beautiful to me than to be able to connect with somebody while I tell my truth. And then my truth might not be the same truth of somebody else's, but within that, we're able to share something. And that, to me, is incredible. That I can, you know, this book, you know, there is so much specificity, but it, as I said earlier, it's for everybody. And that should be exciting to all of us, that we live in a time where we get to tell our truth and it is held. That's so special. Um, and I'm just so corny. So I love, I write for love, man. I, I, I write for love. And, and, <laughs> and I hope for love for all of us. Yay! Thank you so much. <laughs> Hi. Yeah, I mean, that's, 
That's something I think I have tried to do literally since I was a child where people would tell me, do this, and I'd be like, no. Um, I want to sort of change the narrative around 100%, like, you know, there is so much institutional violence in Islam, and, but that is that exists everywhere. And I think Muslims really get thrown under the bus for being like, you're like this, and it's like, that's, these, are, these are systemic issues everywhere. The patriarchy exists. We live in white supremacy. We, you know, we live, people are anti-black. These are all things that we need to literally unlearn as a society. Um, and so Islam, to me, sometimes it becomes like a scapegoat of like, uh, you know, us not thinking beyond just that. And so that, uh, I, I think that the thing that really makes me feel alive is when I look beyond the structure and when I look at, what it makes me feel like. And if spirituality gives you a profoundness or connection or light, why shouldn't it mean something to you? If it doesn't, that's another thing. If it doesn't, it's another thing. I understand that some people just don't want closeness like that. People don't want spirituality. People don't necessarily need it. And I'm okay with that. I understand that. But for me, this is my experience, and you know, there's nothing. I went to, uh, I did Umrah, I performed Umrah, which is like mini pilgrimage um, for Muslims, when I was 19 years old, and I had just had an abortion, and I felt vile. I felt like the worst person. I felt like shit, like worthless piece of shit, and. I went on this pilgrimage not really knowing what I would find. And I, you have to circumambulate the Kaaba, which is the black cube in the middle of Mecca. And there was this moment where I felt embraced for everything that I was. And in that moment, I realized Everybody, people are going to tell you how to be all the time. People are going to tell you not to do this, not to dress like that. You should be like this. You should lose weight, blah, 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 blah. It's a continuous influx of information all the time. And what if we just decided for ourselves about everything? What if we didn't need a guide about anything? What if spirituality is just you inside, listening to the compass of your heart? What if that's what? with spirituality? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think a lot of things. Um, you know, I think that I was taught Islam as the way of it's you and Allah and no one else really matters. And then I saw all these ancient men in my family like to wax about Islam and never fucking pray, never fucking do shit in their life. And I was like, okay. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and I think it was a thing where I was like, oh, cool, like my body's always going to be judged differently than your body's and it's because of how I'm perceived and, and, and I see that. It's plain as day and it's very, very clear to me. And then there was like, and that's not like, what are you guys know that I don't, whatever the fuck. I'm just going to keep talking. And then um, I, uh, and then I was like in college and I um, remember feeling this weight really lifted when I realized that like I could be 
seemingly contradictory to other people and that didn't matter about how I felt about myself and it didn't mm. matter about how I felt about my God, right? And how I felt about my spirituality and how I felt about my compass. And that was that those two things might always be at odds and that doesn't really matter, mm. you know? Um, and then I, you know, I think that so much too of like my defining of like being like I am Muslim um, was was also a contention of being of, of, of or an ask for people to have to contend with my body mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when they don't consider my body as part of what Islam is, right? And then and they don't consider my love as a part of what Islam is. And I was like, well, cool, like it is, and you need to contend mm-hmm. with that. And I will never, ever, 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 ever give that up. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Because you, I'm not here to make you comfortable. Like, especially if your shit is whack. If you're on some fucking homophobic, fucking patriarchal shit, I don't care, right? You know, like, I, I'm totally down to listen to folks, but not about that. And I, and I know that. And that's that's how I feel. And that's how I operate. And that's the mode I go through, right? And also, it's like me being like, I want to make space because I know how damaging it is when you feel like your your desire makes you isolated. When no one has desi- like no one your desire doesn't fit with your religion. Your desire doesn't fit with what it means what you're taught about what it means to be human um, in any capacity. And so I I know that and I want to I wanted to like I feel like so much of what I try to do in my work is like to create that space where I'm like my young, like my version of my younger self would not feel so alone. Like that's it, you know? And I'm like, if I could make that and if I can make like young queer Muslim people feel that, like great. Thank you. And, but that's like, that's, that's all that matters to me, you know, is like making those spaces and making it be like, like I re- like it's just really being like you have to contend contend with all of us like we are not not here you know and you yeah. try to erase us and we are here and so what does it mean when we show up and we say we are here and you have to really deal with our bodies you know and you don't you don't get to deal with like people who who don't have the the weight of what it means to be us talking about it. Does that make sense? Like, it's like, and I'm all here for our allies and things like that, but it's not the same thing. And so that's really, that's really what I feel. Yeah, I'm so, I'm so, you guys, I'm so bobo at being a moderator. I totally didn't realize what time it was. So we have like time for like one question and then that's it. Hey. Yeah. <clears throat> you got to know what you like. And if you know what you like, it's easier to witness that when you make it. Um if you don't like your work, you got to like it. You got to you got to and if and if you don't like your work, how do you get it to a place where you like it? Um, and if you have an honest dialogue with your work and you're constantly challenging yourself and you're pushing yourself a little further, those moments are so much more clarifying when they reveal themselves. So just be patient with it. And, and like, I don't know, I, I believe in the gut a lot, something that's instinctive, that feels right for you. And this applies to everything in life, but work on the gut. Figure out what the gut has to say. What does your gut have to say? I sound like a probiotics rep. (laughs) 
What does your gut have to say? Sponsored by. <laughs> um, thanks, y'all. Thanks for holding space with us. There's a book signing? I don't know where we're supposed to go, and now it's just a little awkward. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Dylan. <laughs> You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.